I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, and joined with me today is our regular co-host, Chuck Marone, author and founder of the Strong Towns organization. Welcome back, Chuck. Hey, nice to be back. As soon as we were going to sit down and record, my neighbor here at the uh, at the art studio came and turned on his stereo really loud. And I kind of feel like a jerk because, you know, I don't want to go tell him to turn it down. You know, it's an art center. There's a hundred different artist studios here, and a lot of them do music. And I'm like, you know, the new guy, and I don't want to be. Hey, I need it quiet. <laughs> yeah. But I moved back to the I moved back to the quieter part of the uh, studio, my studio, and so hopefully people won't hear the loud music in the background. It's it's died down a little bit. Well, I don't hear it. Your sound is great on my end. I've asked my dog to be quiet. We'll see if she chooses to do that. Oh, come on. Yeah, yeah. She likes to bark at people walking by the house. She doesn't understand that the sidewalk is public and that anybody can walk on it. So we'll see if she barks during this show. (laughs) Okay, so today we are going to be talking about a topic that I am very interested in. I have a lot of questions as well that hopefully you'll be able to provide some insight into. So the article was published in Streets Blog and written by Joe Courtright entitled, How to Stop Giving Parking Developers a Free Ride. Drawing on the insights published in Donald Choup's book, The High Cost of Free Parking, he talks about the economic impact of subsidies cities have provided for parking over the years that have basically shredded the fabric of urban places. There are many reasons our cities are so dominated by parking, from federal and state subsidies for highway construction to local zoning regulations that mandate parking to be built on a project-by-project basis. There's no doubt that American cities are dominated by parking, but the article points to a lesser talked about reason that is probably one of the most critical factors for why we've built so much parking, and that is the financial incentives provided by our tax system. So he explains that property taxes in most cities emphasize improved value rather than land value. This means that if you own a piece of property with a building on it, you pay a higher property tax. If you own a piece of property that is unimproved or just a parking lot, you pay a lower tax. So this method of local taxation rewards landowners who demolish buildings and speculate on unimproved or underimproved land, and it punishes landowners who construct buildings and make improvements to property. This perverse incentive led Henry George in the 19th century to propose a single tax on land, which is now generally referred to as a land value tax or LVT for short. A land value tax would create a fixed price so that developers constructing or improving buildings are not faced with increased taxes and speculators cannot avoid paying higher taxes on follow land. So Chuck, you spend a lot of time talking with cities across the country and I'm sure the issue of unproductive land speculation is a common theme in most cities. I'm sure most cities 
face this issue. So is this something that you are finding cities have a particular interest in? And do you see the land value tax as a reasonable solution to the sort of issues that are brought up in this article? Uh, yeah, I do. And I, I think it's important whenever I talk about the land value tax, I always have to start with a disclaimer because a lot of people who advocate for the land value tax, I have found, and let's just be charitable here, I found to be a little bit obsessive compulsive kind of, you know, a little bit like religious zealots in a sense. And so you get the impression if you're talking to them that the land value tax is not only you know a wise tax policy for cities, but it will cure cancer and solve Mitty's peace and and get us to Mars <laughs> and you know reconstitute the uh, the damage to the environment. There's it's like it solves every problem known to man, and it really is an important tool. And I think it's important to understand. But I'm not a religious zealot about it. I I, I don't have that type of uh, adherence. Now, the land value tax. To me, I feel like the proper context to understand it is to go back to traditional development patterns and recognize that the incremental development of cities was always based on this notion of rising land values. In the presentations that I've been giving for a, a decade now, I often will show an image of my hometown in 1870, and it's this collection of pop-up shacks, these little buildings that were the first iteration of the city. And then I show the next iteration that comes 35 years later, and it's these two and three story wood structures. The pop-up shacks have been torn down and rebuilt now, and they're these you know, more impressive buildings, but still like an old frontier town in the Midwest, which is what it is. And then I show a picture from the 1940s, and in that photo, all of the wood structures are gone, and they're replaced by buildings that are brick and granite and you know, more permanence to the place. It's more mature. I think sometimes in our modern lens, we look at that and we don't really grasp the simple mechanism that is going on there. The, the simple mechanism is this. As the place became more of a place and the land went up in value, there was a huge incentive for people to tear down things that were old, dilapidated, run down, or quite frankly, not the best use of the property anymore. I mean, a pop-up shack wouldn't be the best use of a, a lot in downtown Manhattan. We would never expect to see that because the land in Manhattan is worth so much. You're going to see a skyscraper. And so as land values would go up, as the place would become more of a place and those underlying land values would go up, it creates this natural redevelopment cycle where cities just continue to incrementally mature and mature and become more intense and more ornate. What we have done, and the tax system is a big, big part of this, which we have done is arrested that cycle. So that feedback loop is no longer there. We've created these huge disincentives for people to improve their property, for people to want to see their land go up in value. Uh, we've seen major disincentives for almost like punishments for people who do decide to improve their property. I tell this story a lot, but when I was doing engineering work, I, I would go in and, and we'd be doing like a street rehab project. And I would sit down and I would try to sell the project. I mean, I explained to like the property owners, like we're going to go through and we're going to do this and it's going to make your property worth much more. It's going to make your property much valuable. And they would all say to me, we don't, we don't want our property to go up in value. 
if you increase our property, you're going to increase our taxes and we don't want our taxes to go up. We want our taxes to be low. There's a conservative insight on taxes that I think that is often uh, discounted, but is very real. And I think when it comes to parking, conservatives don't listen to, tend to listen to. And it's this, you know, you get less of what you tax and you get more of what you create financial incentives for. Conservatives say this when it comes to employment. When we have employment taxes, people hire fewer people, you know, businesses hire fewer people. When you tax earnings, people have a disincentive to earn more. Well, when you tax improvements to property, you tend to get a lot of parking lots and a lot of vacant spaces and a lot of spaces sitting empty. And that's really a financial disaster for cities. Yeah, it really is. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how our methods of taxation affect how we build our communities. And it strikes me that when people originally settled here in the U.S. and our towns and cities, we didn't really think much about whether or not our taxation methods were rationally tied to the physical cost of supporting our places, or at least it doesn't seem that that we had this this rational thought behind that because in some ways we really didn't need to because we weren't driving around in cars and moving long distances. There was actually a need for communities to be built in ways that enabled people to get from place to place on foot. And that meant that generally our pre-1950s cities and towns were very efficiently built um, and they were much more compact. So we all know that the incentive to build this way changed dramatically. Once every family had a vehicle, it enabled us to travel much longer distances in a shorter amount of time. And that prompted us to build more roads and spread out just because we could. And it occurs to me, though, that we didn't sit down and rethink how we would pay for this new way of living and building. And our current taxation models don't provide feedback that we need to tell us when we've overbuilt on the public side and underbuilt on the private side, so to speak. And that explains the American infrastructure crisis. I've read a lot of city budgets, and it is shocking that critical infrastructure like streets are oftentimes not even tied to property taxes at all. And a lot of the times they're funded by really elastic sources of funding like sales taxes, for example. A rational model for funding our streets to me, it seems to be one that would tie taxes created through development patterns to the physical public infrastructure supporting it. And to take it a step further, I sometimes I sometimes wonder why we wouldn't just create a some, some kind of land cost per acre model to support basic public needs of a city and let that be the primary funding mechanism, maybe even throwing out sales taxes altogether. Let me go back even a little bit further than than I think you were thinking. If we go back to the 1960s in Minnesota, every city had their own tax structure. And it was only in the 1970s that we made a statewide property tax structure with statewide standards and statewide, you know, a statewide approach. And so, you know, while cities may not have had a land tax, they would have or a land value tax or a property tax or a sale, they would create their own set of taxes and fees and structures that reflected their local economy. I, I like to point out that the mining cities in Minnesota had a very different tax structure than the agricultural cities in Minnesota. And that makes sense because their economies are very different. 
if you have a city that is primarily based on tourism, you really should have a tax structure that's primarily based on tourism, or at least leans into that and, and ties more closely to that. You're not going to have you know, a timber tax if you don't have any timber. When we made a statewide property tax in Minnesota, and this was in the same period of time when a lot of states did a similar thing, what we were doing is we were responding to that hardship that individual communities were experiencing. This is in, you know, to use the language that I use in my book, this was at the peak illusion of wealth of the post-war suburban experiment. Uh, this is right when like the bills started to come due. And the way we dealt with this tension was to say, we're going to standardize things across the entire state. We're going to make the system more efficient. It's it's not working out the way we thought. And so our response is going to be to, to become more efficient. What this did is it not only robbed cities of their capacity to kind of individually structure their own tax systems, it also kind of further reinforced the development pattern that had been evolving post-World War II. So if you are a Walmart, for example, which we didn't have back then, but started to come online over the next decade, if you are a mall, if you are McDonald's, if you are whatever franchise, prior to the 1970s in Minnesota, you would have had to have gone to every individual community you wanted to go in figure out what their local tax structure is. Maybe it's based on employment. Maybe it's based on sales tax. Maybe they have a fee structure for licensing that you pay. Whatever it is, you would have had to figure that out, negotiate it, work it out. Now, you only had to do it once for the whole state. And no matter where you went, you were under that same rubric. And the state said, you know what the best thing to get growth very quickly is, is to have a property tax. That's the, that's the best thing. We can tax people with money. You know, if you're building a new Walmart or you're building a new McDonald's, we'll just tax you as property tax. And it was like expedient. It was an expedient way to get a financial sugar high. For cities, it's a horrible way to build a city because what you do is you create a lot of value in the short term, short term growth for things that are, again, less like financial sugar high. What you create a lack of incentive for is making good use of property, filling in gaps in the system, taking one-story buildings and making them two-story buildings, making two-story buildings, four-story buildings. You create a disincentive to thicken up and make good use of stuff. And so what we have is we have cities now that are essentially like, the word that comes to mind is inebriated, but it's not inebriated. What is it where you... Uh, are, are so without resource and sustenance that your body starts to decay. There's a technical medical term for this. And anyway, it, it's like a failure to thrive condition. We, we have are emaciated is the word I'm looking for. You know, we have cities that are essentially like financially emaciated uh, with no meat on the bones, you know, no thickness to their tax base but an enormous superstructure that they have to sustain. And the property tax system, uh, the lack of a land tax, the lack of like a tax system being a local feedback loop just reinforces this in such a pernicious way that in one hand, it's almost indetectable, like we just have accepted it. And the other hand, it's just this constant downward drain and drag on the system that uh, until we get rid of it, until we change, I, I think is just going to be a, a continual anchor on our prosperity. Well, one of the challenges 
I think with implementing a land value tax seems to be the scale that property taxation is implemented at, uh, which, you know, in a lot of places is at the county level. I think there's there's state law that feeds into that, but oftentimes it's the county that is assessing property and administering property taxes. So our taxation system seems to hamstring what municipalities even can incentivize. And oftentimes our systems encourage sprawl and land speculation at this regional scale. So it also doesn't enable municipalities to really accurately scale the true cost of infrastructure and other public services to the tax revenues from the physical development patterns, which is a real shame. The article mentions that the only city in the United States to have implemented some version of a land value tax is Pittsburgh. And at the moment, Hartford, Connecticut is currently considering an ordinance that would help deal with this issue at the municipal level using a light version of land value tax through expanding fees for commercial parking lots. So according to the article, the ordinance would establish a sliding scale of fees for parking lot structures based on the number of spaces that are there. The rational basis behind this proposed tax is that it is intended to offset car subsidies that are built into the current system and would be a solution that could be implemented at the municipal level. This to me seems like a decent alternative to a land tax, but I actually wonder if counties could be persuaded to implement a true land value tax or if the bureaucracy and politics surrounding that would be just too muddy to even dream of doing. Have you ever heard any arguments against a land value tax? Is there some kind of blind spot that we aren't thinking about that or that isn't even being presented here? I think it'd be easy for me to say, no, there's no blind spot. I'm a big proponent of the land value tax. We should be doing this everywhere. The question of why it doesn't get done is a very tactical one. And it really has to do with the the asymmetry of benefits in the current system. So let's say that you and me and a land speculator own three houses next to each other or own three properties next to each other. You you and I have a house and we're paying $1,000 a year in taxes uh, to the city on it. And the land speculator in between us owns a vacant lot and they're paying $100 a year in taxes to the city. So they got a really good deal because they have the same amount of infrastructure that we do. They have the same uh, amount of maintenance costs to the community. It's not like the community you know, plows 10% of the street in front of their house and 100% in front of ours. <laughs> exactly. You know, the, the costs are the same. And so they're getting, essentially, we are subsidizing you and me, this lot in between us. That's a really good deal for them. And it works out from a business model standpoint. They can buy that lot. They can hold on to it at very low annual holding costs for a long time. If you've tried to invest in the current market or if you've done things like uh, buy a commodity that you hope is going to appreciate in value, land is, is so much better of an investment today than any of those things. You can buy it cheaply. You can hold on to it. The annual carrying costs are not huge and the appreciation tends to be pretty high in the current market. So so our market is ripe for that person who lives between us to benefit from this. Let's say though that our city then decides we're going to switch to a land value tax. Well, what would happen is that you and I would see our taxes go from $1,000 a year to, I'm just going to pull numbers out, but it's all proportional just to show. We might go from $1,000 to $800 a year. 
that would be nice. We would like that. Like that would be really cool. And, uh, you know, uh, we, but a 20% reduction in taxes, you know, that's not something that you and I are probably going to go to city hall and fight for and all this. But the guy next to us, his th- his taxes are going to go from 100 a year to 800 a year, just like ours. Well, he's going to have eight times, 800% increase in his taxes. That person is going to show up and fight. And the thing is, that person is generally well-connected. They have attorneys. They are, you know, savvy in terms of investment. Uh, they know more than you and I do about how to get things done at City Hall. And so what you have is, is because the subsidy right now is so great and because the deal is so good for the people who do this, they have a huge incentive to fight and they're also very connected when they do it, any change in the tax system. They basically have grown up an entire financial model around exploiting this subsidy, this loophole. And they'll do whatever they need to to cling to it. And and on the other side of the equation, the benefits to the rest of society are so distributed, even though they're significant, they're so broadly distributed that you know, for us to all get together and fight for our little share of this broadly distributed benefit would not be in any of our interests. Like it would take more time to do that than we would actually individually gain. So there's an, there's an asymmetry of upside and an asymmetry of downside where you have a very sh- small number of people getting a huge amount of gain or a huge amount of loss if it switches and a very large number of people experiencing the pain right now of this but experiencing like only a modest amount of individual gain if it were to switch. And and that, I believe, is why we're in a stasis. It's it's not because this is not a great idea. It is. It's not because this wouldn't dramatically make our cities better. It would. Uh, but it's because, you know, change is hard and people who will be harmed by change uh, have huge incentives to fight it. As somebody who lives in a neighborhood with, you know, dilapidated buildings that are being held by speculators. It is just such a frustrating, it is frustrating to hear that. It's it's just such a disgraceful way of investing, in my opinion. It is. Well, so you, it's you, frustrating. It's backward too, from a city standpoint, because the reality is, is that as a, the community, and I always look at the city as the representative of us, the community, right? I, you can have different theories about state governments and federal governments, but cities are how we work together. When we work together and we put sewer and water and drainage systems and a sidewalk and a road in front of a piece of property, what we should expect in that is that that property then will go up in value and that value will pay for what what has been put in. If the land just sits fallow, if it just sits empty, what, what are we doing? Like that's a really bad investment. What we have actually done is said, if you just sit with it empty, we will not charge you all that much. We'll let you just sit there with all this expensive stuff that we've given to you that we put in place. You can just sit there and hang out and not pay very much. But Oh my gosh, if you go out and try to improve that property, if you go out and build a, a little business on there or build a house or or build something more substantive, then you've just signaled to us that you have money and we're going to tax you because people with money should be taxed. So here's a here's a big fee. And yeah. I, I, just backward. It is completely backward because the in, the community's interest, the community's investment should be in 
recouping the money that they are putting into the infrastructure, which is money that's there whether you build on the lot or not. And it should be in an overall increase in prosperity, which means we should want people to continually improve and upgrade and add on to and, and renovate their properties. We shouldn't punish them from that. If everybody is doing that, the land value will go up underneath it because the place will just become better. And then our tax base will go up and our tax revenues will go up. Like that's, that should be how it works as like a virtuous feedback loop. When you punish people for improving their property, you just make your city poorer. Exactly. And it has so many other implications to housing and the housing market. It has implications for historic preservation. I, I just feel like this touches so many different interests that people in this world would like to support. And I guess I can understand why people are so enthusiastic about land value tax for that reason. It's yeah, it cures cancer and it will solve Mitty's peace and it will help you look better. Yeah. It's going to cure coronavirus, actually, if we just implement a land value tax. Yes. Uh, it will make my gray hair uh, dark again. Yeah, all those things. It's it's wonderful. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, I'm going to let you go on that note. But before we conclude, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we get to share anything that we have been up to lately, anything we've been reading or listening to. So Chuck, what is on your mind lately? I think I said I've been I started the Great Courses series on the the Black Death, the plague, the bubonic plague. And wow, that is it was recommended to me as like, you'll really like this. This is interesting. Oh yeah, it's been really good. It was pretty horrible. And it's fascinating to see kind of the the cultural reaction both the differences and the similarities between now. I just got through a chapter where the cities would go out and like kill off all their Jewish population because they, you know, superstitiously believed that it was the Jews poisoning wells who were causing this. And then other cities who did the opposite, who protected their Jewish population. But those were a smaller number of places. Just the horrific things and the, the kind of the the madness that this caused because People didn't understand what was happening, why it was happening. Um, but, you know, at a certain point, you could see it coming because the city, you know, it would be like it was uh, 200 miles away and now it's 100 miles away and now it's 50 miles away and now it's 25 miles away. And, you know, hopefully it'll pass us by, but it won't. And it's a gut wrenching uh, series of lectures. Uh, very insightful. Yeah, that sounds very, very intense. We have been practicing some new cooking recipes recently. Um, the, actually, a couple of weeks ago, YouTube, it kind of plays videos randomly if you let it on the TV. And, and this video popped up with some guy who, who teaches you how to cook different things. He had this recipe for like fried chicken, biscuit, just super unhealthy meal and we went out and made it from scratch and it was pretty awesome. So I've been looking into new recipes and we've, we've made crab rangoon and all kinds of different things recently, which has been really nice. Um, wow. I also, so I got a new guitar last month and then, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I haven't had gotten a new guitar and I don't know, maybe 
15 years, <laughs> I've been using the same guitar for a really, really, really long time. So I, I got a new guitar and actually from my dad. So I've been learning some new songs and I've been listening to a lot of Gary Clark Jr. He has this um, album from 2014. I think it's just called Gary Clark Jr. Live and it's awesome. And I've just been listening to blues and, and learning some some new songs in the guitar. I'm looking forward to the time when I can like maybe schedule some time with a uh, with with somebody who can teach me, you know, some lessons in person. Wow. That sounds like fun. I was playing my bass the other day and just feeling very out of practice as well. There's something very pandemic-y about playing music alone. I hope like we can get beyond this soon and get back to playing music with other people. That would be really cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I would love to like be able to actually get together with different people who play different instruments and, you know, have not necessarily a band, but just other people to play with. Sometimes it's it's kind of boring to play by yourself and I get distracted very easily. So the last Congress for the New Urbanism was going to be in Minneapolis. And we had planned a bunch of things, you know, a bunch of activities that didn't take place. But one of them is we were going to have instruments and do have a jam session. There's a lot of people who play drums. I, I just happen to know a bunch of CNU people who play drums, but there are other guitar and bass and other people. And we were just going to have like, you know, a couple hours before the debate started where people would just show up and jam. And I don't know if you've ever done a jam session with with good musicians, but it is a lot of fun. I mean, I, I've been involved in these like multi-hour long jam sessions and it's, it's just a really good time. Yes. I come from a musical family. So yes, I've, I've definitely witnessed the jam sessions and I, I love to watch people play music. And I think I told you over the summer, we have a lot of musicians in the neighborhood and, and they, they get up on somebody's garage and play concerts and, it's just awesome. I I love 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 listening to music and seeing live music and it's just been awesome that we've had that in the neighborhood over the year. So now I know what you and I are going to do next time I come to Kansas City. Yeah, jam sesh. We actually have um we have drums. So we, they're they're bongo drums. They're not like <laughs> yeah, it's not like a drum set. They're, but they're bongo drums. So we're gonna go out for barbecue, you and me, and then uh, and we'll bring your husband too. That'll be cool. And then we're gonna go find some music and join a jam session. Absolutely, that sounds okay. great. All right, <laughs> cool. <laughs> well, thanks, Chuck, for taking the time to chat with me today. You bet. Thanks, Abby. Thanks. And thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Cheers. Take care.